Sometime later, chapter 15, verse 1, during the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat. Nothing says I love you like a young goat. <laughs> he was practicing for the goat ripping contest and thought, you know what? I should really go see her. I'll just take this with me. So took the young goat as a gift and went to visit the bride. Now, most likely this is for the father because he's offended the father. He's giving it to him. He said to her father, I want to have sex with my bride. Bring her to me. You've been gone for several months and you come back, not even with flowers. And the first thing on your mouth is just, I want to have sex with my wife. Because technically she's not his wife because they've never consummated it. You can imagine if this is, was your potential son-in-law, how scared this father. I mean, the daughter probably cried on the father's shoulders and said they were all threatening to burn me alive. And then and this is what he does. is like, I just, the, the, the person I, I mean, you know he's a Philistine, but I really feel sorry for the father here. Like he seems to get the short end of the stick on everything in this story. Her father said, I really thought that you would be absolutely despised her. I don't know what would make me think that, but you disappearing for a couple months. So I gave her to your best man, which he probably has no idea who his best man is because it was given to him as a wedding. Her younger sister is more attractive than her. Now, he may really mean that or he may not. He may just be trying to get Samson to not kill him. So I wouldn't read. Maybe he really thinks that or maybe he's just saying it. Maybe he's just trying to stay alive. Samson said to them, this time I am justified in doing what I, the Philistines harm. That says something. If somebody comes to you and says, this time I have the right to get angry, that means that they know last time they might have not had the right to get angry. <laughs> so he confesses with his own mouth that he got a little carried away last time, but not this time. He's totally justified this time. So he's going to go out and do more damage. Samson said to them, this time I'm justified in doing the Philistines harm. Samson went out and captured 300 jackals. Your translations say foxes, but a lot of scholars think it might actually should be the word jackals, but it really doesn't matter because it's an animal with a tail, and that's what really matters. He got some torches. He tied the jackals in pairs by their tails and then tied a torch to each pair. I can't imagine catching a fox, let alone 300, and sitting on them to tie their tails together with fire. You have to line them all up and like run down the line and light them all on fire. Like, how do you do that? There's, I mean, granted, he's probably got cages. Talk about creativity. This is like a little toddler boy who like, how are we going to solve this problem? They create this great invention. You're like, well, we could have just used a pencil. Great imagination, great creativity, but you kind of like miss the simplicity of fixing the problem. He goes out and he captures these foxes or jackals. He ties them together. He releases them into the, the crops, burning everything down. Now, this would have been an attack against the god Dagon. Dagon was the god of the grains, the god of the fields. God is using him because Dagon cannot protect the fields. And as they're being burned down by Samson, the oblivious agent of God. Why is that important? Because that's how the Samson story is going to end, is in the Dagon <laughs> temple. So he burned up the grain in heaps and standing grain as well as all the vineyards and the olive groves. That's a massive destruction. The Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson the Timnite's son-in-law, because the Timnite took Samson's bride and gave him to the best man. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father. And Samson said to them, because you did this, I will get revenge. So they respond by building the burning the family. 
They're not even technically related. The marriage never even happened. That's like really messed up. And so the Philistines are burning them down. Everybody likes burning. Because of this, I will get revenge against you before I quit fighting. So Samson's like motive. Now remember, he now uses the word vengeance. Knows how misguided it is. This time I have the right to be angry. This time I'm going to get vengeance. <laughs> All these words are, is there anything about God here? No. He's not doing this for God's glory. He's not, has he ever talked about the Israelites once? It doesn't seem to be benefiting anybody in any kind of way. It's not even benefiting him. Tantrums don't benefit anybody. He struck them down and defeated them. And then he went down and he lived for a while in a time in a cave in the cliff of Etan. Why does he go to a cave? Yeah, he's made enemies out of everybody. And we're going to find out later, the Israelites don't even like him. He is completely friendless. He's just causing problems for everybody. The Philistines went up and invaded Judah. And they arrayed themselves for battle and Leah. And the men of Judah said, Why are you attacking us? The Philistines said, We have come to take Samson prisoner. So we can do to him what he has done to us. Three thousand men of Judah went down to the cave in the cliff of Atom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? Why have you done this to us? He said to them, I have only done to them what they have done to me. Now that sounds like little kids. I mean, that's what I ask my daughters all the time. Why did you hit your sister? Because she hit me first. I'm only doing what they did to me. That's an immature response to have. He's a grown man who's supposed to be leading Israel in the deliverance of, from their enemies. And his answer is, I'm only doing to them because of what they did to me first. That's not love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice that they say, do you not know the Philistines are ruling over us? Like you're rocking the boat. They're not crying out to God for help. They're not doing anything about the Philistines because they don't want to rock the boat. And they're now angry at Samson because Samson's gone to the hornet's nest and he's kicking it and they're the ones getting stung. And they're angry at him. They don't see this as deliverance. They don't see him being used by God. He doesn't even see himself being used by God because he says, I'm only doing to them with it. I mean, a better statement would be, God called me to do this and God will protect us and take care of us. But nobody sees this in any kind of way an act of God, even though God is indirectly using Samson because there is nothing else to use at this point. This is sad that Samson is God's best choice right now. Verse 12. He said to them, We have come down to take you prisoners so that we can hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said to them, Promise me that you will not kill me. They said to him, We promise we will only take you prisoner and hand you over to them. We promise not to kill you. They, try, they tied him up with two brand new ropes and they led him up from the cliff. And when he arrived in Leah, the Philistines shouted out as they approached him. But Yahweh's spirit empowered him and the ropes around his arms were like flax dissolving in the fire. They melted away from his hands. He happened to see a solid jawbone of a donkey and he grabbed it. And he struck down a thousand men. And Samson then said, With the jawbone of a donkey I have left them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey I have struck down a thousand men. Now how does he kill the Philistines? With the Spirit of the Lord. But what is his tool? 
a carcass. He is not only taken from a carcass and eat it and hand it to his parents. Now he's using it to do the will of God. The Holy Spirit has come upon him in power and he picks up a dead carcass, so to speak, and uses it to do the will of God. The very thing that disqualifies you from being coming in the presence of God and doing the will of God is the very thing that he's using to do the will of God. He is completely oblivious to what God is doing here. And he says this riddle. So he kills a thousand, which is all because of the Spirit of God, but he does it with an unclean item, disqualifying him from being used by God. And then he sings this little poem. Now, we don't know exactly what this word means in the second stanza, or the second line. It could either mean that I have um, made asses of them, or I have made heaps of them. And we don't know either. So either way, he's either saying, like, I have used a donkey to make an ass out of them, or he's saying, I have piled them all up on a hill. Look how awesome I am and how many people I've killed. Either way, what's the focus of this little ditty? Himself. When we saw God deliver Israel from Egypt, and Moses wrote a song, he praised God. When we saw God deliver Israel from Sisera and Deborah wrote a song, she praised God. When Hannah's prayers answered and God gives her a child, she's going to praise God. When Mary is given a child and she praises God. When God defeats the enemy of Israel, David's going to write a poem praising God. Samson praises himself. I don't think he knows he's chosen, but does he acknowledge God? Yes, because right here, this is the total contradiction of it all. So he was very thirsty, so he cried out to Yahweh. This is the first time that he actually cries out to Yahweh. Now, he doesn't use the name Yahweh, but he does cry out to Yahweh. You have given your servant this great victory. For the first time ever, he acknowledges that God is behind this. So somewhere, he's connected the power of God coming upon him. I mean, he's, remember, he may not have the most common sense, but he's not dumb either. I mean, this is a pretty incredibly well-written poem too. He's got to be aware enough to know that like, all of a sudden this power rushes upon me. Now here's the other thing you need to realize. Does it ever say that Samson's strong? Does it ever describe Samson's physical appearance other than the seven braids in his hair? Every movie you watch, Samson's always portrayed as some bodybuilder. Now first, that doesn't exist in the ancient world. There's no such thing as people that muscular in the ancient world. Because the only way that you can get that muscular is, well, steroids. But <laughs> intentional, isolated, lifting weights, where you specifically focus on certain muscles repetitiously over and over and over and over again to build that up over a long period of time. Who in the ancient world has time to do that? No. Everybody's working on farms. Are there people who are incredibly strong in the ancient world? Yes, but it's all natural muscle. In fact, most people will tell you that the people who don't look like giant bodybuilders are actually more strong or stronger than bodybuilders because bodybuilders might be able to like bench press or lift an amazing weight in one thing, but they don't have that fluidity of strength. 
the ability to actually do practical everyday normal things and they don't have the endurance to be on a farm all day. A bodybuilder might be able to lift a tractor up on the farm but they won't be able to do the entire day like a normal farmer can. The idea of lifting weights and looking like that actually isn't going to come about until the Greeks come along. They're going to invent athletics and gymnasiums and competition. I mean, not that nobody was ever competitive in other cultures, but they weren't competitive in a I'm better than you kind of a sense. Because most games in the ancient world were communal and about people just getting together and playing games. And they might be a little bit competitive, but it wasn't like let's stand on a podium and get a medal for it and just outdo everybody else. So that doesn't exist in Israel as well. And any time that he's ever able to do anything, it's only because the Holy Spirit comes upon him. It's interesting that people who, all these Christians have made all these movies, have completely missed the point. The one guy who doesn't waste the Holy Spirit, and the movie makers miss that. And they make Samson out to be the strong guy. I mean, he could be Urkel, for all we know, or Barney Fife. I mean, the strength was in the Spirit of the Lord, not him. And so there's got to be something where he knows on an everyday normal level he can't do this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden he feels this rushing upon him and he's able to do amazing things. He's got to at least know that something supernatural is happening. Now, does he know that it's Yahweh versus the sun god? We have no idea. You can maybe assume that he gets his Yahweh because he, the narrator says he cried out to Yahweh, but it never says that. But listen, if he would have just kept his mouth shut, stop right there. You've given me victory, God. Stop. But instead he says, But now must I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the Philistines? Is that how you worship and praise God afterwards? You've given me this great victory, but now you're going to let me die of thirst out here? I mean, come on, God. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, sometimes it scares me just saying that, and I don't even mean it. And then God and His grace... And his mercy actually provides it for him. Just like when Moses says, must we give you water? And he strikes the rock in anger, toll like a trust, and God still brings the water. Because sometimes, this is what I mentioned earlier, don't assume because God is blessing you, you're right with God. Sometimes God blesses you even when you're not faithful, like with Jacob, because he's hoping that blessing will wake you up to who he is so you can come to him. So sometimes God judges you and punishes you because that's what you need, the kick in the rear end to get right with God. Sometimes you need to experience the blessing of God despite your unfaithfulness so that that's what you need. But God knows what you need. God knows what you need. And so God in His mercy and compassion actually provides them water. And there's a definite Moses theme going on here. Notice that none of the positives of Moses show up anywhere in this story. It's just this negative. Then he has the audacity to do this. God split the basin at Leah, and water flowed out from it. When he took a drink, his strength was restored, and he was revived. For this reason, he named the spring En-Hakor. En-Hakor means the one who cried out. He named it after? He finally acknowledged God, but then had the audacity to demand that God bless him with water, and then when God miraculously provides him in his own grace and love despite his unfaithfulness, he names it after himself. This is the only time 
An Israelite names something after themselves after God has done a miracle. Even the Egyptian Hagar, who mocked Sarah and Abraham and thought she was better and completely missed the point of the Abrahamic covenant, what God was doing, named the spot that God came to her after God. Elroy, God sees me. Even she knew as an Egyptian that you name this after God. And he names it after himself. That's narcissism. That's narcissism. It remains in Leah to this very day. And Samson led Israel for 20 years during the days of the Philistines' prominence. The end. That's the end of the Samson story, right? Kind of it is. What's missing? What's missing in that closing phrase? No peace, no rest, and? And he died. There's no mention of death. But everything about this phrase is the way that God closes up every judge. Every judge finishes with, and he led for so many years, and then he died. So then the narrator says, and he led for so many years, and? And the narrator does tell you, and then he died. The Delilah story is how Samson died. The narrator is intentionally wording it this way. Because for Samson, we're not getting one statement and then he died. For Samson, we're going to get an entire story about how he dies. And what this lets you know is, as a reader, I automatically know that he, this is his death. And everything in the Delilah story is leading to his death. And the point of this is to show how tragic his death is. So technically, this is the end of the Samson story. It's just that last line is going to get its own little expounding and unpacking in itself. 